Hey, good morning again. I want to encourage you to um, uh, join me. I'll be going to Faith Walkers and have been there virtually every year for the past decade. It's a great experience to just be away with believers for a three or four day experience where you dedicate yourself to some fantastic messages and being in community with other believers. So I do want to encourage you to go. I'll, I'll be there and uh, some others here are going as well. And uh, you will not regret, regret, uh, regret going. Well, I'm going to make a safe bet here. I'm going to bet that more of you last night, last night watched the football game than took in a poetry reading. I'm just going to make that bet. I'm going to bet that very likely more of you read the post-game stats this morning than you read T.S. Eliot or Emily Dickinson. Safe bet? Yeah? I think so. But in one of his great essays, C.S. Lewis, an essay called The Theology of Poetry, he described all human beings as poetic. Ah, you didn't know that about yourself, did you? You really are a poet. You are a poet. But he's defining poetry maybe a little differently than what you would imagine. He's not thinking simply of haikus or flowery words or witty rhymes. What he means is that above our quest to survive or to feel pleasure or to avoid pain, above our desire to find facts and to live rationally, what we really seek is to be part of a story. A story that takes our small lives and places them squarely into a larger, grander story. A story that gives meaning to our lives, a story that can tell us about our past, and a story that gives us hope for the future. Is the Christian faith poetry? Well, in this sense, yes, it is. It's a story. It's rooted in real history, and it seeks to answer life's most important questions. Christians seek to understand their part of the big story and find their place within it. Where did I come from? What is my purpose? What is God doing in the world? How do I know what is true? For many centuries, for many centuries, actually the Christian story was the main story. But in the last several hundred years, a different story has emerged, has risen to the surface. And this story has prevailed. This story has created a different picture of the world. It's given different answers to these big questions. And behind its cool rationality, Lewis says, we, what we really have in this story is poetry. Now, what is this chief rival of the Christian story? Again, Lewis goes on, and he calls it loosely, generally, the scientific outlook. Now, I'd like to read a section, a lengthy section, from this essay. I'll do some minimal paraphrasing, just so that it's clear. Let me begin here. Lewis says this about the scientific outlook, the dominant story in our culture. He says, supposing this to be a myth, And by myth, he's saying a large, all-encompassing story. Supposing this to be a myth, 
Is it not one of the finest myths the human imagination has yet produced? The play is preceded by the most grave of all preludes, the infinite void, and matter restlessly moving back and forth, bringing forth it knows not what. Then by the millionth, millionth chance, what tragic irony, by the millionth chance the conditions at one point of space and time bubble up into that tiny fermentation, which is the beginning of life. Everything seems to be against the infant hero of our drama, just as everything seems against the youngest son or the ill-used stepdaughter at the opening of a fairy tale. But somehow life wins through. With infinite suffering against overwhelming obstacles, it spreads, it breeds, it complicates itself from the amoeba up to the plant, to the reptile, to the mammal. As the weak, tiny spark of life began against all huge hostilities of the inorganic, so now again, amidst the beasts that are far larger and stronger than he, there comes forth a little shivering, cowering creature, shuffling, not yet erect, promising nothing, the product of another millionth, millionth chance. He becomes a caveman with his flints muttering and growling over his enemy's bones, dragging his screaming mate by her hair, tearing his children to pieces in fierce jealousy till one of them rises up and tears him apart. He cowers before the horrible gods whom he has created in his own image. But these are only the growing pains. Wait till the next act. There he becomes the true man. He learns to master nature. Science comes and dispels the superstitions of his infancy. More and more he becomes the controller of his own fate. Follow him into the future. Well into the future. Then see him in the last act, though not the last scene. For man has ascended his throne. Henceforward, he has nothing to do but to practice virtue, to grow in wisdom, to be happy. And now the final mark, the final stroke of genius. Because if the myth stopped at that point, it would be trite or sentimental. It would lack the highest grandeur of which human imagination is capable. The last scene reverses all. We have the twilight of the gods. All this time, silently, unceasingly, out of all reach of human power, nature, the old enemy, has been steadily gnawing away. The sun will cool. All suns will cool. The whole universe will run down. Life, every form of life, will be banished without hope of return from every inch of infinite space all ends in nothingness and universal darkness covers all close quote now lewis likens this story to an english tragedy 
where the career of the hero can be represented by a slowly ascending and then rapidly falling curve with its highest point in Act 4. You see him climbing up and up and blazing at the highest pinnacle and then overwhelmed in ruin. Lewis says that such a world drama appeals to all of us. The early struggles of the hero, who's delightfully doubled, first by life, then by man, appeals to something in us. His future exaltation gives us a future optimism. And the end, we don't think about it since it's so, so far away. Lewis concluded that he was deeply moved by this story. But what he's speaking of is his poetic power, not whether he believes it or not. And as to believing it, Lewis said, I believe less than half of what it tells me about the past and less than nothing of what it tells me about the future. So on the grounds of which Lewis rejects the story, we will come back to But it is very clear that this story, we might last, Lewis called it scientific outlook. Last week we called it naturalism. Uh, Its most plainest, uh, nomenclature, most famous uh, phrase to describe it is atheistic evolution. This story seeks to answer who we are, where we have come from, what is our end. And this story has come to dominate our academic world, our world of government, and indeed, our cultural world itself. Stephen Hawking, in A Brief History of Time, clearly states how the scientific outlook has led the way in defining who we are. He wrote this, We exist for such a short time, and in that time explore but a small part of the whole universe. People have always asked a multitude of questions. How can we understand the world in which we find ourselves? How does the universe behave? Where did this all come from? Does the universe need a creator? Traditionally, these questions are for philosophy or religion. But philosophy is dead. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. And then he says, scientists thus have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. So, what you have is, in our world, is two competing stories. Two stories wrestling for our imagination. But coming back to our series, how do these stories relate to miracles? And why are miracles, as we looked at last week, why are they so controversial? Why do some claim it is wholly unreasonable perhaps even a sign of mental illness, (laughs) to believe in them. Well, a story that believes in miracles allows for divine intervention. It allows for someone outside of our natural world to make a surprised and unannounced visit. And that belief runs into a direct collision course with the prevailing story of our day. In this story, in the story that prevails today, in the story of atheistic evolution, miracles seem out of place, antiquated, 
And believing in them invites accusations of gullibility or childlike naivety. So, here's what I'm trying to say. The credibility of miracles, the possibility of miracles, ties back to which story you believe best describes our world. It comes back to these stories. The rival story, naturalism, atheistic evolution, does not have a method to find God. Generally, I hope I'm fair in saying this, generally, academic settings are purely secular. They neither seek God, nor do they even have a line of questions that would bring them back to God as a possibility. Again, I know that's a generalization, but if I'm overstating it, I I welcome your correction. And so the critical question then that follows that is that in our academic world, in the world of academics, are they letting the evidence that is there take them to a reasonable conclusion? For what if, just this morning, imagine with me, what if the universe itself is such a miracle, so surprising, so unexpected, that it soars in amazement beyond the virgin birth or making blind eyes see. If we are open to all questions and possibilities when we examine the world, what do we find? Which way does the evidence point? Does the evidence point to chance and thus the impossibility of miracle? Or does it point to thoughtful design? And thus the expectation, not just the possibility, but the expectation of God entering into our created world. Now, as is quite plain, I am not a scientist. (laughs) But as a Christian pastor, I do not believe in God blindly. You know, as the old story of faith goes, I don't believe in God despite the evidence. That's not what faith means. Rather, I believe that all truth is God's truth. And I am looking for the symmetry between what I learn from the Bible and what I learn and see from the created world. For I believe there is symmetry and harmony there. And in my remaining moments, I want to share three areas of symmetry that I see between the Bible and the physical world. I'm going to pose these by way of a question. Number one, is there evidence for the world being set into motion by God? Number two, is there evidence of God making the world with us in mind? And number three, is there evidence that the world is being sustained by God? Is there evidence for that? We'll see that these three points actually overlap quite a bit, but each have sort of a separate strand by which we can follow. Now, That was the lengthiest introduction in sermon history. So let's take a moment and let's stop and pause and ask God to uh, intervene and to speak to us and to guide us and to illumine us. Um, Father, in um, our few short moments here together this morning, we pray that you would make uh, your reality clear to us. Father, I believe that you're real. I believe that we can have a relationship with you. And I believe that the physical world, Father, 
reveals and is in harmony with what your scripture teaches. And so we pray that we can explore and look at this view of life and creation today. Father, those that are here this morning that are investigating, that are not yet Christians, that are seeking, that they could um, have what they need, Father, to sort through what they believe. And for those that are already uh, veteran followers and Christians, that they could have a deeper and better understanding, God, of who you are and how creative and powerful and amazing you are. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, you, if you're using a Bible, and we'll have the verses behind me as well on the screen, but it's Psalm 104 is going to be our base of operations. It's page uh, 502. This particular psalm, what it does, it celebrates God's kingship over creation. It describes God creating the world. It describes how God manages and sustains and provides for his world. It talks about how dependent the world is on God. And then it ends with this robust, renewed um, desire to worship and to adore God for his creative power. Those of you that are familiar with Genesis chapter 1, the creation account, you'll see the obvious parallels of this psalm to that Genesis 1 account. Now, let's look at that first question. Is there evidence for the world being set into motion by God? Let's look first at some scriptural evidence for that. Beginning in Psalm 104, verse 5. There the writer says, God sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Now look at a different text, Psalm 24, verses 1 through 2, a similar passage. And, you know, a lot of times... We just skate over these verses and don't think about the words, the truths that are being communicated. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to Him. For He laid the earth's foundations on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. And one more, Psalm 119, verse 90. Your faithfulness extends to all generations. You have established the earth. And it stands fast. These texts talk of setting a foundation or establishing or putting into motion something ordered, stable, and immovable. Earthquakes may shake the earth, but the earth itself remains. A house or a building built on a good foundation can last for centuries. A faulty or miscalculated foundation, and some of you have experienced this, you'll have a whole array of problems. In my research on this, I learned an historical fact that I never knew. And that is that, is that we almost had our own leaning tower of Pisa here in the United States. In 1848, work was begun on the Washington Monument. And then through a series of missteps and poor planning and poor calculation, it was left, it was left uh, without worker attention for nearly a quarter of a century. It was saved in 1876 by a structural engineer 
named Colonel Thomas Casey. When Casey took over this square masonry pillar, how many of you have been there? But many of you have. Yeah. When he took over, this pillar was already exerting more than 10,000 pounds per square foot on very fragile supporting soils. It already leaned out about 1.7 inches out of plumb, which is not bad for that height, but that's not good as you get bigger. And already there were cracks in the masonry, and the, the base itself was beginning to crack as well. And without Casey's help, we would have indeed had our own leaning tower of Pisa. And so foundations are what's needed to establish something. And indeed, when Casey took over, the very first thing he began to redo and remanage was the foundation. And what the scriptural texts are saying is that the earth was built on a strong, solid foundation that God established. Here's another interesting verse, Job 26.7, one of the oldest books of the Old Testament. Job wrote this, that God spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Perhaps this ancient writer saw a great constellation to the north. And he marvels that God, as one commentator put it, God takes this huge ball of the earth and suspends it in vacancy with nothing to support it but his own fixed will, his own firm laws. You ever think about that? How is the earth Actually, how can it be suspended in the middle of space, in that vacancy of space? Now, in these next couple of sections, I'm going to quote heavily from Eric Metaxas. I mentioned his book last week, and uh, he does us, people like me, laymen who are not scientists, the favor of summarizing some of the great research from some of our most renowned Physicists that are known internationally, individuals like John Lennox or John Polkinghorne um, or Paul Davies, people that are very well respected in the world of physics. I'm going to quote heavily from Metaxas in order to lean into this research. He puts it in a way that I can understand and hopefully can help you to understand as well. Because is there evidence? Is there evidence? We see what the Scripture teaches, but does our physical world support that? Well... What do we learn from science about how the world was set into motion? Here's a couple of things. Most scientists now regard the Big Bang as the most plausible explanation for how the world began. According to this view, the whole universe arose or actually exploded out of nothing and has continued to explode or expand ever since. Now, this does not contradict the Bible but reinforces the biblical view that matter is not eternal and God spoke the world into existence from nothing into something. Now, that's a significant point. Secondly, though, how controlled was that explosion? You know, if the speed of that explosion was only a tiny bit faster are a tiny bit slower, no galaxies, our suns, our planets could have formed. And of course, without that, life could not exist. To say that it was controlled, this 
speed of the explosion, are precisely calibrated, can hardly begin to explain the degree of control involved. Scientists cite this as the most extreme fine-tuning yet discovered about our universe. Now, by fine-tuning, here's what they mean. They mean the precise calibration of properties and elements, their weights and their values. And by fine-tuning, what it means is that they have to be just right for the universe to come into existence. In some cases, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent off, and the universe does not exist. In 1966, Carl Sagan reported that there were two examples of fine-tuning by 2001 physicists now report, even 14 years ago, that number was up to 150. Now back to the Big Bang. Besides the Big Bang itself, besides the speed of the explosion, also consider this. Physicists have what they call the four fundamental forces of life's existence. They are gravity, two, the electromagnetic force, might remember that from your science classes. Three, the weak nuclear force. And four, the strong nuclear force. Now, Metaxas summarizes that if any of these forces were in the slightest degree difference in the weight or property, our universe could not exist. But the question we must ask is how were the values of these four determined in the first place? Where did it come from? For consider this. It's a fact known to those who study this sort of thing that these crucially precise values were established once and for all within one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. I I dare any of you to try to count one millionth of a second. In other words, they were established immediately. By the time the universe was this old, one millionth of a second, the value of these four forces were set in place. And you know what? They haven't deviated yet. They have not changed yet. Now let's talk about the age of the earth for a moment. For a moment, please, I know there's a debate about this. Let's just set aside the debate between how old the earth is. Okay? It's kind of an interesting question, and, and some say it could simply be solved by the calculation or how we calculate time. But that's a whole different story for a different day. I'm not qualified to, to, to comment on it. But let's for the moment concede that the earth, that the universe is 14 billion years old. If that is indeed the case, those, the value, the properties of those four forces for 14 billion years have not changed the tiniest fraction. They have remained the same. And so the track with that sort of track record, we can presume they will be the same tomorrow as well. This is but one example. And there are many others equally remarkable. Did God set the world into motion with life forces that would create an orderly and stable world? If we are open to the evidence pointing to God, then indeed a very strong case can be made. Let's look at the second point. 
So is there evidence for God setting the world into motion? The second point, is there evidence that God created the world with us in mind, with human life and human flourishing in mind? Look at verse 2 in Psalm 104. It says, The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. Now this Hebrew word stretching out is literally pitching a tent. And you pitch a tent in order for people to live. If you were to go back and see how this word tent is used in the Old Testament, you would see that when it's linked to creation, sometimes it means God sort of setting the borders, establishing the borders for creation. But in other cases, occasionally, it often includes people, creating a place for people to dwell, to live in. And so one of the implications of this verse is that God has made the earth for us to live. How does he do this? By what processes? We get a little hint. Verse 14 in Psalm 104, the writer says, You cause the grass to grow, for example, for the livestock and plants for people to use. You allow them to produce food from the earth, wine to make them glad, olive oil to soothe their skin, bread to give them strength. The, uh, Psalm 104 goes on to talk about how God provides for the animal world as well. But here's another interesting aspect of how God, how God has made the world for us and for life to live. Look down at verse 19. It says that you made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to set. Let's talk about the moon and the sun for a moment. The moon itself is a miracle. Finely precise. I mean, finely precisely put together. Slightly bigger, it would cause our tides to be far more extreme with a stronger gravitational pull. With 100-foot tides, there could be no coastal cities, towns, or villages. If it were smaller and a gravitational pull not as strong, the tides could not cleanse seawater and replenish its nutrients. If the moon were any other size, life as we know it would not exist. The size of the moon and its distance from the earth are also responsible for stabilizing the earth's rotational axis. If it were not stable or not at its current optimal angle, we would not be here. Without earth's tilt, we would not have our seasons and our temperatures would be far less stable. How about the sun? As to the sun setting, if the earth rotated ever so slightly slower, the temperature swings between night and day would be inescapably deadly. If our planet rotated a bit more quickly and therefore gave us shorter days, it would produce impossibly high winds. Winds on Jupiter, we know, routinely, routinely reach 1,000 miles an hour. Now, we don't know what they would reach here, but enough, they would be enough to make impossible a stable environment conducive for human life. Yesterday, my wife and I were returning from Michigan, stayed up north, on a visit with our son, and an RV passed us. And my wife asked me if I could ever envision RVing. And I said quickly and bluntly, no. I had seen my dad struggle with a 
small camper trailer, preparing it for trips, wrestling with it to get it hitched. My dad didn't swear, so he had to find other things to say or do to vent his frustration, filling the propane tank, then hauling it and carefully backing it into the campsite, taking several times to get it right. Then there was all the work that once you arrived to the campsite, leveling it, getting the interior ready, converting a bed into a dining room table, turning a bed back into a couch and everything else the reverse way. My, uh, my son said it very well. He said, too much work for too little space. Uh, I think that's a good way of saying it. My other son. No, no, for me, for me, give me a three or four room cabin by the lake that I can drive to, stretch my legs in, and when I'm all done, all I got to do is pack my bags and go, and I don't have to worry about emptying human waste. Now, my wife and I agreed, though. I know some of you, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding here a little bit. I know some of you are really faithful RVers, and you love it, and it's, it's all fine and good. And I know many of you enjoy it, and some of my objections are jaded, and some of them I know are quite, are quite old. But it's true that if you were given to it, if you were really committed to RVing, you could enjoy it, you could build a, roti- a routine, and it would become quite enjoyable. I remember Pastor Mike Thaler telling me about how they tent camped, how they tent camped with their kids. And Mike and Kelly had a very well thought out, deliberate plan. All their camping equipment was carefully arranged in bins and was all stored in the exact right order in order to put up camp. And then when they tore down camp, they put everything back in the same bin and put it back in reverse order. They could literally set up camp in a few minutes and they could tear down camp in a few minutes. Now, God, what this scripture is teaching and what we find affirming evidence in the scientific world is that God has pitched a tent for us. He's pitched a tent and he's thought it through with great detail and great intentionality so that we could have an ordered, stable, largely predictable environment to live. It's a gift from God to you. It's a gift from God. You see, again, if we are open to the question of the possibility of God, there is breathtaking evidence that the world was made by a thoughtful mind who designed it for you and designed it for me. Think about what you do when you have guests into your home. You have a thoughtful, deliberate plan. You might order uh, catering for food. You'll rearrange the furniture. You'll clean your house. You'll set out chairs and tables for people to, to enjoy themselves. God has done the same thing, just on a much larger and a much grander scale. You know, the very constancy and regularity of these life-giving forces like the sun and the moon They're seen by some as evidence, as proof that the laws of nature, the laws of nature are impersonal, that they're mechanical. They run like clockwork without the need of an intelligent mind behind it. Even the term laws of nature infers they are self-driven. And require no one to wake them up or to arouse them. And yet that's exactly what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that the sun 
rises each day, not because of a predictable, impersonable law of nature, but the rising of the sun each day is, in a way, a miracle. For God orders it, and God decrees it, and if it didn't happen tomorrow, life as we know it would come to a screeching halt. And this is exactly my final point. Is there evidence that the world is sustained by God? Is there evidence that the world is sustained by God? Not only set in motion by Him, not only made with us in mind, but actively sustained by God. The New Testament writer Paul put it this way, Christ holds all things together by the power of His Word. Psalm 119, verse 89, the writer said, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day. For all things are your servants. What is the they? The they is the heaven and the earth. And all of the laws and all of the design that God has planted into it. They are God's servants. They're not there by some inevitable, inorganic law of nature. For God sustains what He creates. He did not build something He could not sustain. You know, sustainability today is the talk. Everywhere you go, you hear people talking about sustainability. An author wonders, can I keep the suspense in my novel Can I sustain the suspense? Business owners, how can I create morale while sustaining high performance? There's many students here. You're always asking, you know, with a heavy workload, with extra credits on my schedule this year, how can I sustain this pace without imploding? Well, God created with sustainability in mind. And He's neither overmatched, nor overextended, nor living on the margins to get it done. God set it into motion according to Scripture. He created it with us in mind, and He sustains it. And when we look out into the created world with an open mind, we find evidence to support exactly what the Bible teaches. Symmetry between the Scriptures and the created world. So let's wrap up by just simply asking the question, how does any of this make a difference? How does any of this make a difference in my life? Let me go back to Lewis, and then I'm going to just mention very briefly some applications. I promised that I would come back to Lewis and answer the question, why did Lewis reject the scientific outlook? Why did Lewis reject atheistic evolution? Well, stick with me on this. It's very interesting. You see, Lewis recognized something. He recognized that the theory of evolution required what? It required scientific discovery, and it required intentional thought, right? Someone had to think about it. Someone had to look at the evidence and then infer conclusions. Someone had to engage rationally. But Lewis asked this question, how can you expect me to believe in someone? are to believe in their rational conclusions. If their life and if their mental processes 
are only the product of chance. If the way that they think is only a product of chance, then how can you ask me to trust any conclusion that they come to? Why should I listen to any appeal to truth if our very way of thinking cannot be trusted? Very interesting. You see, this is what Lewis is also saying. You see, the very basics of science and the very basics of the scientific method, they assume a view of life that, number one, the world is rational. The world is ordered, right? Number two, it assumes that the world can be studied and learned in such a way that I can draw truthful conclusions. And number three, it assumes that we as human beings have the mental equipment to make sense of that world. We can look at that world and make sense of it. Friends, that's science. And that view of life is much more at home with the Christian story than it is the secular story. In the secular story, that view falls apart. It's self-contradictory. But as Christians, that's what we believe. God made a rational, ordered world, and then God gave us a corresponding mental equipment by which we can make sense of that rational, ordered world. We can study and appreciate and enjoy and wonder at what God has designed and created. You see, if there is evidence for a world created by God, for human beings, and sustained by God, then miracles are not only possible, but we should expect them. We should expect them. We should expect this God who has created us, who's made the world for us, to poke his head into our world to communicate about himself to us. We should look for it. We should expect it. It fits with what we understand about God creating the world. So very simply... Let me just mention a couple things here by way of very practical things. Number one, if you're a non-Christian this morning, if you're in that place of examining and exploring the evidence, one, I'm so glad that you're here. And there's an opportunity here for us to come together because some of the questions you have are some of the exact questions that Christians have. And so there's a sense of where we can be a learning community together. And I'm glad you're here and seeking. And I would just appeal to you to examine the evidence that is there that points to God as creator. You may have only heard one side of the story up to this point in your life. I want to encourage you to listen to the other side of the story. Secondly, for those who are believers, creation should build into us an awe of God. And we should be like at the end of Psalm 104, where when we reflect on the created world, it should just move us deeply. In the same way that Lewis was moved by, the, by, the, by atheistic evolution, in the same way we should be moved even far more deeper by the Christian story. And it should result in a robust, renewed desire for adoration and worship of God. This is what Psalm 33 teaches. We should be in awe of God. Stand in awe before Him and fear Him. Thirdly, we should recognize our dependency on God. We are so dependent on God. We don't realize how dependent we are on God. Like I said, you all expect that sun to rise in the morning. Why? Because that's what the sun has always done. 
But we forget that God is the one who decrees the sun should rise. We forget that God is the one who gave you oxygen to breathe. We forget that God is the one who equipped you with these physical lungs in order to take in breath by which we can breathe and live. Isn't it true that in relation to how dependent we are of God, we think so little of Him, don't we? We really think so little of Him. We appreciate Him so minimally in light of how radically dependent we are. The Psalm 104 passage teaches that if God were just to hide His face for a moment, if He were to turn His face away for a moment from sustaining the universe, that the universe would come to a screeching halt. All life would become nothingness. We are, you are, I am radically, wholly dependent on God for every breath. And the fourth point is this. For those of you that are believers and you are uh, wanting to share the gospel and share the life of Christ to your friends, I just want to remind you briefly that the gospel does not begin at the cross. The gospel begins at creation. For it is creation that gives us a sense that we do not belong to ourselves. And if we're going to communicate effectively to our culture why they ought to look at or consider Christ, we have to first establish the reality that they do not belong to themselves. But they are responsible and accountable to a creator who created and designed them, but also loves them fiercely. Loves them with a love that they've never known before. So when we share Christ to our friends, we begin not with the cross, but we begin with creation. And that's how the cross then makes sense. Because when we begin to realize how little we've given to God, how much we've stolen from God, the gifts that God gave us, the, the, the joy that God gave us, the life that God gave us, the way God provides for us, and how ungrateful we are, how little thought and time we give Him. When we recognize how much we've stolen from Him, that's then when we can really appreciate what Christ did by dying for us and dying for our sins so that we could become reunited with and reconciled to the God that created us. Pray with me. Father, thank you for these moments that we could be together this morning to remember the message that you set this motion into world, set this world into motion, that you sustain it, and that you made a world for us to live in. And Father, I ask you that for those that aren't sure if they know you, that they could consider what's been shared this morning. Take a fresh look at the evidence. Help them in that process, Father. For us who are already believers, I pray that we take a new and have a deeper understanding and appreciation for how much you love us and and how much we owe you, how much we ought to give to you in worship and adoration and appreciation for creating us. Father, may these words this morning continue to live in us and inspire us. Through Christ we pray. Amen.